All right, well, turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 4. The title for today's message is Greater Than the Storm. And we really come to a slight change in the way Jesus is operating here, particularly in the way Mark is reporting here. At the start of chapter 4, we have a collection of parables, teachings from Jesus, and whereas now from chapter 4, verse 35, through to the end of chapter 5, we have a collection of miracles. He's moving us on from parables to miracles, and this is the first miracle of three then that we see in these next chapter and a half. So let's read from verse 35 to verse 41 of chapter 4. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for the way it ministers to our souls. It it takes us by the hand and it sits us down and it addresses us. Because behind these words is your voice. They're exhaled by, by you. As Mark is scribing, he's ultimately writing on behalf of you. And so, Lord, would you minister to us today? Lord, this wasn't just written down for a group of 12 guys 2,000 years ago. This was written down for us today, Sovereign Grace Church Sydney today. And so would it come alive in our minds? Would it come alive in our hearts? Would it speak to our souls? Amen. In Job 5 verse 7, it says, As sure as sparks fly upwards, man is born to trouble. How true that is, is it not? The longer you live, the more you realise how true it is. Sure as sparks fly upwards, man is born to trouble. For all of us at different times face storms of many kinds. Moments where the boats of our lives can feel tossed around by powerful waves, waves of trial, waves of pain, waves of difficulty, And every once in a while then, you or a family member faces a trial where you begin to wonder if you're ever going to get out of it or if these are the waves and this is the storm that is actually going to take you under and you'll drown within it. So you wake up Monday morning. Weekend was fine, but you wake up Monday morning and you just don't feel quite right. You don't feel quite right Tuesday and Wednesday. So you go to the doctor's on the Thursday and he refers you to the hospital immediately and you go. 
And the doctor at the hospital admits you straight away and tells you it is bad news. Or the girl you wanted to marry, you'd been looking forward to it and you'd been spending time with her for some time and you were convinced that this is surely the one. You'd even been playing the, the music behind, behind your ears as you go and visit her every day of she's the one. You know, you're convinced that this is the one. And yet she tells you that you aren't the one. She's not interested in a relationship like that with you and you're, you're heartbroken. This is somebody you've been going out with for three years. You, you'd spent your whole life trying to, trying to build around this. And then there's the job. You've been giving yourself to it for years. You're trained in this area. You've been giving yourself to it for a long time. You're convinced that this is going to be the job that's going to see you through, that's going to help you, that's going to aid you. And that you arrive in on Monday morning, you discover that the, the actual firm has been taken over and you get called to the CEO's office because you are being made redundant today. And he wants you to fill your desk up, put it in a box and then leave. Or the kids. You've been walking through trials with them for, for what seems like forever. Particularly with one specific child, you've been walking with them for what seems like most of their life through great difficulties and yet very quickly you're discerning that this individual is falling away. Falling away from the Lord. They're not interested. They're just starting to wreck their lives in different ways or they're turning away from the Lord's values and you're broken hearted and yet there's nothing you can do about it. Or friendships. Feeling disconnected. You feel alone. You're convinced that by now you should have been married, but, but you're not. Or maybe you are married, but you're aware that this marriage seems to be breaking down. The marriage friendship itself seems to be coming apart. And you feel like then you're in a storm. You know, for all of us at different times, we feel like we're in storms, don't we? For sure as sparks fly upwards, man is born to trouble. We all face storms at different times, but here's what we learn in this text before us today. From chapter 4, verse 35 to 41, we learn one great and wonderful thing. And it's this, that whatever the storm, the Lord is in your boat. That whatever is going on, whatever waves are pummeling you from all sides of the boat, whatever's taking place, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, is in your boat. See, as Mark pens this letter, there's no doubt that as he pens this letter under the inspiration of God himself, that his main aim is to declare to us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so in Mark 1, chapter 1, at Mark 1, chapter 1, verse 1, we read the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the banner across this whole book, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what Mark does all the way through, particularly the first half of the book, is just keeps hammering the nail to us that this is the Christ, the Son of God. And so we see Jesus' baptism recorded for us, a moment where he steps into the sin-polluted waters of the River Jordan and in doing so identifies with sinners and in doing so the Father himself can't contain his pride and joy and love in his Son and declares as he rips the heavens open, this is my beloved son. Moments where Mark is seeking to point us to, yes, that's true, this is the son of God. 
Moments where Jesus is teaching the crowds and people are leaving, shaking their heads, basically saying, we've never heard anything like this before. Teaching with authority in this way. We see Jesus rebuking demons and casting out demons and they flee in a moment. We see Jesus healing the sick and in a moment people are healed. And the question throughout this book then is who then is this? Who is this? And it's a rhetorical question that Mark is asking of the reader Who then is this? He's using what the disciples are saying and what the crowds are saying at the time to speak into our lives. In effect, he's saying, who do you believe he is? This is who he is from my perspective. Who do you believe he is? And he wants to take time, time and time again, whatever the chapter, to help us see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And yet, as you keep reading this book and as you keep studying this book, you realise there's also another aim. There's a great aim of declaring that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but there's also another aim, and the other aim is that as Mark pens this book under the inspiration of God himself, you realise God himself wants to disciple and care for those that will follow him in the future too. There's discipleship going on here in the book from Jesus, not only to these twelve, but to us, isn't there? And so at the start of chapter 4, we have these four parables. Four parables in which Jesus himself exhorts us as to the importance of paying attention to what we hear. He gives us warnings and blessings depending on what we do. He wants us to pay attention to what we hear to ensure that the soils of our hearts are ready to pay attention to what we hear so that it may well go well for us. In the second two parables, they were then exhorted by the Lord himself as to his sovereignty in the midst of him building the kingdom of God. For we're called to scatter the seed, but he gives the growth, right? It's him. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's going to look pathetic at different times. It's not going to look impressive at different times. But ultimately, he's in control of it all. He will give the growth. He's discipling us. He's helping us. He's aiding us. He's his disciples. And he does it here again through this miracle narrative in chapter 4, verse 35 through 41. Because knowing that as his disciples, we will inevitably go through trials. He wants to help us see that whatever the trial, whatever the storm, I'm with you. Whatever you go through in your life, I'm in your boat. And to see this for the Christian, I think, is encouraging, it is comforting, and it is profoundly strengthening then as we face storms in our lives today. So three points this morning, three things taken from the text. Here's the first. Number one, the Lord is ever-present with us to uphold us by his power. Let me say that again because it's wonderful. The Lord is ever present with us. He is ever present in your boat to uphold us by his power. Look with me at verse 35 and 36. It says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. See, this day began... In chapter 4, verse 1, here's what happened at the beginning of the day. Here's what's been happening throughout the day. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, And he began to teach beside the sea, 
And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. Start of this day and throughout the day, Jesus has been teaching the crowds in parables and then pulling to the disciples to one side. He's been explaining to the, to the disciples, this is what these parables mean. He's been literally unraveling the parables for the disciples to help them, to aid them for the road ahead for them. And yet now, as the day begins to conclude, the Saviour wants to head to the other side of the sea. As we'll discover next week, there is a ministry over the other side of the sea that Jesus wants to attend to. Disciples don't know this at this point, but what they do know is the Saviour wants to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so here, as we imagine the sea, and what we see is a number of boats heading over the other side of the sea, across the Sea of Galilee, and the centre boat is Jesus and his disciples. And yet no one saw what was coming next. No one had anticipated what was about to happen, because in verse 37 we read as follows, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. <laughs> I mean, Jesus, it could we not have picked a different time to go across? I mean, no, this is the day and they are about to face a great storm. You see, given its unique location in the mountains between the Mediterranean Sea and the desert, this large lake, otherwise known as the Sea of Galilee, was vulnerable to sudden storms. This is what one commentator says about these storms. He says, violent winds can come across its surface as if they are blowing through a funnel. These winds come without warning and could turn the tranquil lake into a roaring tempest in a matter of seconds. Even with today's modern equipment, some people refuse to sail on the Sea of Galilee for fear of perishing under the wrath of the lake's violent moods. Well, this lake, this sea is moody. And on this given day, it is having a violent mood. And as the disciples are heading across with Jesus in their boat, it is all going off. The funnel of wind is coming through. There is a tempest on the sea. The boat is filling with water. And the disciples are, well, quite clearly, they are somewhat panicked. Why? Because they think they're going to die. They think this is the end. They think that their lives are being brought to an end right now. The boat is filling up. The waves are huge. They are discerning we are going to drown. John Blooms in his book Not By Sight tells of this scene this way. He says, James knew this sea. He and John had spent most of their lives on it or in it. His father was a fisherman. And so were most of his male kin and friends. Yet in this moment, his memory flashed the faces of some of them who had drowned in similar, unpredictable Galilean windstorms. A seasoned boatman? James was not alarmed easily, but he knew a man-eater when he saw it, and this storm had opened its mouth to swallow them all into the abyss. Terror had been in John's eyes when he grabbed James and yelled, We have to tell the Master! And they stumbled to the stern. How Jesus had remained sleeping while the furious surf tossed the boat around was itself a wonder. And so they woke him, screaming. 
The disciples are afraid. The disciples are scared. They're convinced that surely in this moment they are about to die. And so they wake the Saviour, and this is what happens then in verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. I love this scene. What a scene. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to have been there, to have seen this? I wouldn't have wanted to be in the boat, but I would have loved to have just been nearby to see what's going on here. These disciples are scared out of their faces. They are experienced seafarers. They're fishermen. Many of these guys are fishermen. They know the sea. They've lived around this sea their whole lives. And so as the Jesus says, hey, listen, let's go over to the other side, they've taken a look and gone, yeah, seems fine. Let's do it. It'd only be about 12 miles across, so let's do it. This will be fine. And so they get in the boat and off they go and yet the storm starts coming and they are absolutely terrified. They're panicked, thinking this is going to be the one that kills us. We're going to drown. And so they wake Jesus in a panic. They wake Jesus, fearful of all that is taking place. Jesus wakes up, says to the storm, quiet, be still. And it does. <laughs> those waves cease. The skies open up around them. It goes on to say that they're now really terrified. Not surprising. They've just been reintroduced again to the holiness and majesty of Jesus Christ. The disciples, these experienced seafarers, when it comes to the storm, they've got nothing to offer. But when it comes to Jesus in the storm, he wakes up, still rubbing the sleep out of his eyes, he's tired. Just says, oh yeah, stop, be still. And in a moment it's done. Friends, I want you to notice here, behold the greatness of God. Because that's what's on display here, is it not? If we are paying attention to what we hear, what we see here is the profound greatness of Jesus Christ himself, the greatness of God himself. The Lord is so far above us in every way, isn't he? He's so far beyond us and above us in ways that we can't even fathom. He's the one who breathed out the sun and puts the sun at a certain point in our axis to ensure that we don't burn by day in the summer and to ensure that we don't freeze by day in the winter. He's put it just right to ensure that we're at the right temperature at different times of the day and that we're not literally burnt up or frozen to death. He's the one who breathed out the stars there are 100 billion stars in our galaxy and over 100 billion galaxies. And on Isaiah 40, we discern that he not only created them, but he names them and he sustains them. He literally holds them so that not one is missing. He alone is the one who can mark off the heavens with the breadth of his hand, from the point of your thumb to the point of your finger. God himself is the one that says, yeah, sure, I can do that. The Lord himself can mark it off. With the breadth of his hand, he's the one that can hold all the waters of the earth, the Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, the Indian Ocean and beyond. He holds it all in the hollow of his hand. He's the one who can measure all of the weight of the earth in a a basket. He can weigh all the mountains in a balance. He's the one before whom all the nations in the earth, in their grandeur and splendor, even if you put them all together, are mere dust on scales that can be wiped away before him. He's the one who in majesty and sovereignty and splendor 
was born through the birth canal of Mary. He became incarnate for us on the greatest rescue mission ever told. He's the one then who looks at a demon in a moment and says, be gone, and that thing flees. He's the one who looks at the sick and says, be gone, sickness. Be healed. And in a moment they rise up and walk. He's the one who looks death in the face and says, be gone. Death, oh death, where is your sting? He raises Lazarus from the dead and then he does it in his own life as well. He gives his life but then he takes it back again. He is the majestic one of all and he's even showing here a greatness and authority over nature. And so he stands in the boat with effortless ease, be quiet, be still, and it is stilled in a moment. Even the molecules of water and the wind and the waves obey his voice. He's incredible, isn't he? you see him for who he really is, you realize he is incredible. And here's the reality, my friends. It is this Lord that we've just talked about there that's in your boat as well. Isn't that incredible? As you go through the storms of your life, you're never alone. This Lord we just read about here, he's with you as well. In Hebrews 13, verse 5, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Matthew 28, 20, as he just talks about the disciples and the mission that he's sending them on, he goes on to say, and behold, I will be with you to the end of the age. I will never leave you or forsake you. And the Lord in his majesty is in our boats to uphold us. He's the one who we can cry out to for grace for change. He's the one in a moment who can look our situations in the eyes and change them in a moment if it be his will. He's powerful enough to do that in a moment, which is why we want to cry out to him for that endeavor, is it not? He's the only one. So often, I think, when we go into storms, we're just like the disciples. We can't really do much about it. Have you found that? You're going into a storm and you realize, I I hadn't prepared for this, I hadn't seen this coming, and I really don't know what to do. The Lord knows exactly what to do. And he's powerful enough to do it. He's the one who knows your frame, who knows how you're made, the one who spins the galaxies. He can, in a moment, through his power, give grace for change. And if it not be his will, that in this moment the storm ceases for you, then minimally, for his glory, he can give you grace to sustain. Grace to carry on. See, sometimes in the storms of our lives, we don't understand it, but the Lord doesn't just arise and say, Be still. He just helps us to hang on. And he keeps reminding us, I'm in this with you. I've got you. I will use this for my glory and I will use this for your good. There are mysteries surrounding storms so often, but I've got you. I'm ever present to uphold you. And ever present in my majesty and my power, ever present with you. What a wonderful discovery this is, isn't it? Now so often we can feel like that the Lord has abandoned us. And I think that's something that Satan has a field day with. That feeling that surely he's abandoned you now. Look, where has he gone? Well, Jesus Christ is your saviour. wants you to know, I haven't gone anywhere. I'm in your boat. I'm ever present with you to uphold you by my power. What a wonderful discovery. But that's not all we discover here. Number two, The Lord is ever-present with us to strengthen us. 
in our faith. See, after the Lord rebukes the storm, he then turns and gently rebukes his disciples. And he does it through asking them two very carefully crafted questions. Verse 40. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? You know, at first glance, as I thought about this this week, these questions can appear a little harsh. I mean, this is a gentle rebuke from the Saviour. He's not just asking in terms of, hey, just wondering, just thinking. It's a gentle rebuke. He's basically saying to them, you should have had the faith. And it can seem, though, a little harsh, doesn't it? I mean, the disciples had been experiencing major trauma. The disciples had been experiencing a severe windstorm. It did appear to them that they were about to drown and die. I might have been a little bit nervous about the situation as well. They thought they were going to die. They thought this was their last moment on earth. They are in great fear. And so it can appear a little bit harsh. But what do you mean, Saviour? What, what, what do you mean? And should you have not had more faith? Have you still no faith? It seems a bit harsh. Maybe. And yet it's when you take another look that you realise this isn't harsh at all. Because out of anybody that walked the earth, these disciples really didn't have any excuse for this lack of faith at all. These men had lived and travelled with Jesus at length. These men had witnessed his power. They'd seen his miracles. They had soaked up his divine words and had observed his character. They had seen Jesus in action for, for many months now. They had seen what he was like. They had spent every waking minute of the day with him. They had seen his power, seen his majesty. They had heard his words. They had observed his character. If anybody was alive at this moment, then surely these individuals would be they that should have completely trusted the Lord. And yet as soon as that storm comes, as soon as it becomes difficult for them, they forsake their trust in Jesus. They're panicked. So in verse 38, in great fear, they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? you hear the accusation in what they're saying? They've just walked with him. Now they're accusing him of not caring. Sinclair Ferguson writes this about their question. He says it was the cruelest question they could have asked because the very reason he was in the boat, indeed the world, was precisely because he did care for them. This wasn't a harsh question from the Saviour. It was a gentle rebuke from the Saviour. In effect, what he is saying to them is, guys, how can you still be afraid? How come ye have no faith? After all we've been through, have you still no faith? And yet, you know, before we start tutting at the disciples, I want you to consider a question. It's this. Can you and I not be like this too? We've seen Jesus in his majesty. We've seen him save us. We're now post-cross. We've seen him in his glory and his sovereignty and in his majesty and his splendor. We've seen his personal and particular and profound love for us. 
As you review your past, you see His faithfulness again and again and again and again, don't we? We stand up here at the end of the year and we have Testimony Sunday. And people are declaring His faithfulness again and again and again. And we all nod and say, Hallelujah, He is good. And we believe it. But then that storm comes that we hadn't been expecting. And all too quickly we can be tempted to look back and go, God, do you not care? Where are you now? Why is this happening to me? Why is it that I'm sick? Why is it that I'm losing my job? Why is it that my kids aren't walking with the Lord in splendor and power? Why is this? I've given my life to you. Can we not be like the disciples too, do you think? I know I can. That moment when that unexpected storm comes that I don't like, the temptation can be, rather than running to Him for grace, running within to figure out what am I going to do now? And then when I can't figure out what I'm going to do now, the accusation, all be quietly, can come with, do you not care? Have you not seen the way I've been serving you? What's up with it? My friends, I submit to you one of the main reasons why God in his grace and mercy allows the storm of life to keep coming our way is to teach us that he can be trusted. I submit to you that's one of the main reasons why he allows those storms to keep coming. To help us see, I've got you. Stop relying on yourselves. Because I've got you. It's like a parent to a child that keeps discipling them and training them and discipling and training them. It appears to me, if you study Scripture, that in storms, God is discipling and teaching us as His children. What is He teaching us? That we can truly have faith in Him. That we can trust Him. J.C. Ryle wisely talks about it this way. He says, Let us learn that Christ's service does not exempt us from storms. Let us mark well this lesson. If we are true Christians, we must not expect everything smooth in our journey to heaven. We must count it no strange thing if we have to endure sickness and losses and bereavements and disappointments, just like other men. Free pardon and full forgiveness, grace by the way and glory at the end, all this our Saviour has promised to give. He has never promised that we shall have no afflictions. He loves us too well to promise that. By affliction, he teaches many precious lessons, which without it we shall never learn. By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and our weakness, draws us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections, weans us from this world, and makes us long for heaven. Isn't that wonderful? He leads us through the storm and into the storm because he wants to teach us something. He wants to teach us, I've got you. Heaven is your home, not here. You don't need to rely on yourself. You can rely on me. You can trust in me. Kent Hughes then says it this way. He says, this is a vital principle of spiritual life. Without difficulties, without trials, without stress and even failures, We would never grow to be what we should become. Storms then 
a part of the process of spiritual growth. My friends, so they are. The Lord allows the storms. The Lord sometimes brings the storms to teach us that he is enough. He brings it to strengthen our souls in him, to reveal to us afresh how much he can be trusted and in part how tempted we can be to trust in ourselves and make an idol out of our own powers and our own abilities. And he brings it to our attention. You've got nothing, but I've got everything. I can be trusted. And so, my friends, I want to encourage you then. When the storms of your life come, seize them for what they are. Seize them as the God-given opportunities that they are to trust in the Lord. And so stand firm then on the promises of his word. Stand firm in the midst of a storm that he will never leave me nor forsake me. That he will be the shade at my right hand so that the sun will not harm me by day nor the moon by night. He will never let me go. He will always be there to hold me and help me. He will be my refuge through all troubles. Stand on the promises of God's word that he will never let you be tempted beyond which you can handle and refuse then to give in to the sin of fear and anxiety and worry that points to the very fact that we don't trust him. We're basically in our fear and worry and anxiety looking at the throne of grace and saying, I don't trust you. They're opportunities to brandish faith and say, I do trust you. And Lord, this is hard for me, but I'm standing here believing that you are God. And in the midst of it all, I urge you and exhort you in and through it all, cry out to the Lord of grace. Cry out to the one who is powerful and good and who will uphold you. Why? Because he is there to strengthen you. He is in your boat to strengthen you in your faith. He knew the storm was coming. You didn't. He did. And he is allowing it for your good and his glory. And you're not alone in it. He's there saying, I'm here to help you. Trust me. I've got you. I'll never let you go. My friends, sometimes we don't know why. Often we don't know why. But we can know who. We can know who's in the boat. And we only have to look at Calvary to realize how he feels about us. So when those trials come and the storms come, stand firm. Stand firm on the word. Stand firm. Don't give in to the sin of fear and anxiety and worry. Stand firm on the word and cry out to him for grace. That he will strengthen you. And what you will discover then as you look back on your life is you've grown in your faith in him. And you, like the farmer, will work out and wonder, how did this happen? Part of the way it will have happened is through storms where he's taught you, you could trust me, you could trust me, you could trust me. The Lord is ever present to strengthen us in our faith. And then number three, the Lord is ever present with us forevermore. Look with me at verse 41. It says, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? 
See, even now these disciples still don't fully understand who Jesus is. They've got inklings, they've got points where they're wondering different things, but even now they don't get it. Who is this? I mean, he's our rabbi, this irresistible grace that's caused me to follow him, but who is this guy? What is this all about? He can heal people. He can rebuke demons. He can still the very waters of the ocean. Who is this? And yet for them, as the story continues, and for us now as we look back at the story, they began to understand exactly who it is, and Peter then declares it, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And as we look back on the story, we can understand and discern the same thing, can't we? He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the one who came on the greatest rescue mission ever told. He's the one who came to earth from the Father's side so that we may have life and that in abundance. He's the Messiah who would come in and through Himself to make it possible for us to be forgiven of our sin, to have our sin removed as far as the east is from the west, for us to be justified, for the gavel of the judge to come down our lives and to declare us righteous, for us to be redeemed, brought back from the slavery we're in so that we can rise and go forth and follow him, so that we could be adopted into the family of God. Not just brought in to then sit at the back and, hey, you can be a part of the family, but, you know, a bit awkward to sit at the back. No, no, you, you come and sit right up front because you're my child and I love you. And he made it possible for us to know that heaven is our home. That there will be one day a place where there will be no more sin and no more pain and no more crying and no more difficulty because we will be there in glorious perfection on that day with Him. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the Messiah that we've always been waiting for. And yet as this text closes out, I don't want you to miss this. I think what Mark is doing here taking us from chapter 1, verse 1 to the end of chapter 4, particularly here in chapter 4, he's pointing us to a greater storm to come that will make our salvations possible. See, even now, Jesus is on his way to a far greater storm, isn't he? As he's in that boat and stilling this storm for them, he ultimately is on his way to a storm that we know as Calvary. The moment in history and in mankind where he would be strung out on a cross and he would then take on the storm of God's righteous and fearful and righteous wrath in our place. Literally on the cross, Jesus Christ would throw himself into the eye of the storm for us. When he took on that storm, he would cry out, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. He identified again with sinners and revealed afresh, this is why I came. Father, pardon them. Pardon them in their sin. He then cries out, I thirst. As the father begins to turn his face away from his son, he he starts to suffer in his entirety of his body and soul and he begins to thirst. And then it culminates in, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cry of anguish, 
the moment where the storm is at its ferocious best against the Saviour. The moment when the Saviour is being forsaken. The moment when the Saviour is being abandoned and the Father returns and then pours His righteous wrath in its full on His Son for us. Tim Keller describes this greatest storm for us this way. He says, Jesus was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink us. The storm of eternal justice. Of what we owe for our wrongdoing. And that storm wasn't calmed until it swept him away. My friends, even now Jesus is on his way to a greater storm for us. And that storm wasn't calmed until it swept him away. He was stilling this storm in this moment for the disciples, but ultimately he was on his way to a great storm that would not be, not be stilled until he was swept away. A storm that we deserved. A storm that we had caused. But a storm that as we get close to, Jesus runs and propels himself into. In your place and in my place. So my friends, I want to encourage you then. If the Lord then did not abandon you, if the Lord did not abandon you in the midst of that greater storm, then he will surely not abandon you now in the midst of any other storms either. If he did not abandon you in the great storm of Calvary, having called your name, he would surely not abandon you in any of the storms of your lives today. And what good news that is, don't you think? My friends, as sure as sparks fly upwards, man is born to trouble. Different times we will all face storms in our lives and maybe in truth, maybe now you're going through a storm of your own. Given the amount of people in this room, there will no doubt be some of us go through a storm now. storm of health, storm of family, storm of work, storm of job, storm of relationships. The storms come at us from different forms. Here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want the Lord, I believe the Lord wants to burn into your hearts this morning. Whatever the storm, the Lord is in your boat. He's ever present to uphold you by his power. He's there as the King of kings and Lord of lords for you to cry out to. He's upholding you by his power. He's ever present to strengthen you in your faith. Even now he's working in the midst not only of your situation but your very soul. And he's ever present with you forevermore. So would this reality encourage you and comfort you and help you for the road ahead? That's why it's here. And in him then, may we all find a sweet peace. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, your word is so gentle to us.
And Lord, as we realise in this Gospel of Mark, you're, you're not only placarding before our eyes who you are, but you're also ministering to us as your would-be followers, as people who have now put their faith in you as your Lord and, as your Lord and Saviour. But I thank you then for ministering to our souls so gently and wonderfully. Lord, we should trust in you at all times. Yet in our frailty, often we can be tempted not to. Lord, would we be ministered to then by this word and would none of us leave this room today unaware of who has us? Who is in our boat? Because whatever the storm, you're in our boats. And Lord, would that supply a sweet peace for each and every one of us. For holy is your name, glorious is your name, and faithful you are. Amen.